and welcome back to True Crime Tea! Yay! So I know there's been a brief hiatus of about two weeks. Um, just a lot of things have been going on. As you guys know, I am a writer and I've actually got some new books coming out in just a couple months. So I had a bunch of deadlines. I had traveling for my other job at Switcher Studio. Uh, just a lot of stuff happening at once and it kind of delayed us a little bit, but we are back in action. We've got our weekly shows back for you guys. And as a thanks for sticking around and coming back with us, there's actually going to be a bonus episode this week. So today is Tuesday, October 16th. Of course, there's an episode that you're listening to right now that just came out today. But this Friday on the 19th of October, there's also going to be another episode. And after that, we're going to start normal Tuesday episodes. So you guys get a bonus one. Thanks for sticking around. Um, I also want to thank Lee Morris. So for those of you guys who have been with me for a while, you've seen you know, some of my indie work, doing presentations at conventions, or doing indie films, or even streams on YouTube and Twitch, Lee is kind of my right-hand gal, and she has always been a big help. We've been best friends for years. I was her maid of honor. You know, whenever I get married, she'll be my matron of honor, and she's been wanting to do a podcast with me for a while, so we've actually brought her in to True Crime Tea as well. So Lee is now the researcher and writer, so instead of it all coming from me while I'm juggling other projects as well, Lee's kind of your starting line so she gets to pick you know a really good story along with me and then she researches it writes it up sends it to me and then from there I'm able to do the narration as I'm doing now um, and then also editing the episode you know doing commercials and doing the publishing and then both of us help to promote it so you know if you guys have not you know checked out anything Lee has done definitely check her out she's on Twitter at riot redhead 502 um, again, if you haven't followed me on Twitter, I'm the Angie Chu uh, on Twitter. And you can also find us on Instagram. So on Instagram, I'm the Angie Chu as well. And also on Facebook. Uh, Lee does not have Facebook, but she is on Instagram at Riot Redhead. So thanks again so much for Lee. You're awesome. Thanks for helping me out with this. And welcome to True Crime Tea. So this is a story that I actually heard a few months ago. Um, it was really gripping. It's one of those where you kind of feel bad for everyone involved, which a lot of times doesn't happen with true crime stories. A lot of times it's clear, you know, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. And even though at the end of this, there is still clearly, you know, who did the bad thing? It's a thing where you kind of feel bad for the main players all around. And it's one of those stories that makes you think. It's a great story to have discussion with. So this is definitely an episode to share with family or friends, um, you know, and, you know, kind of discuss it, especially if you have different generations around. That's when you get the really good conversation going with this. So without further ado, here is the story of Jennifer Pan. And let's change the music. There we go. So everyone has issues with their parents. You know, I did, everyone I know did. You grow up, things get better. And, you know, thankfully most of us experience that. You know, our parents want the best for us. 
bottom line. That doesn't always correspond with what we want as we're growing up, but usually as you get older, you can admit, hey, my parents did their best, they were trying to help me. But this isn't always the case. So a small percentage of young adults still feel as though they were denied true happiness as they grew into their adulthood. They feel like they were unnecessarily restricted by their parents and it can lead to a lot of feelings of anger and discomfort and you know just even hatred towards their parents and one such person who felt this way was jennifer pan so in 1979 hui Han found his way to canada as a political refugee and shortly after arriving in canada he met another refugee who was a woman named big ha so they headed off really well, they got married, and they started to build their own form of Canadian sanctuary in Toronto, which is, of course, a big city in Ontario, one of the main cities in Canada. So this sanctuary they were building was going to be the home to give life to a new family that would live a superior and better lifestyle to the ones that they had growing up back in Vietnam. So on June 17, 1986, their first child was born. She was a baby girl named Jennifer. And three years later, Han and Bic Ha gave birth to her younger brother, Felix. So together, Han and Bic Ha wanted to supply everything they could for their children and to give their children the best life possible. They started working for a Canadian auto factory called the Magna International of Aurora, and this was in Ontario. And by doing all of this hard work, they paved the way for their children's success. So Han worked as a part and die maker at the Canadian Auto Factory, and Big Ha worked making auto parts. And together, they saved as much as they could, they persisted, they were working overtime, and they were able to give their children the opportunities that they wanted to have when they were growing up. So by 2004, the couple had saved enough to buy their family a large two-garage home in the residential area of Markham, Ontario. And Markham featured a large Asian population, which allowed the Pans to feel even more at home. Both Bic Ha and Han drove high-end cars at this point. Han bought himself a Mercedes-Benz and Bic Ha drove a Lexus ES3000. So they were doing great. Together they'd managed to stockpile their savings to over 200,000 Canadian dollars. And this was just all through hard work, determination, saving and spending when they needed. So they've amassed this large amount of money in relatively a short period of time. So as a child, Jennifer was afforded an education hobbies that her parents could have only dreamed of in their villages in Vietnam. And because of Han and Big Ha's high expectations, a part of it was so that their children could continue living this kind of life. And another part was to show that their hard work was paying off. Jennifer's life was scrutinized and micromanaged for success. 
So from the age of four, Jennifer was taking piano lessons and figure skating lessons and still expected to do well in preschool and elementary school. Uh, she practiced her figure skating around her schoolwork and around her piano lessons. And in the beginning, Jennifer loved this. She dreamed of one day becoming an Olympic figure skating champion. So she was more than happy to, you know, practice as much as possible and learn all the moves that she needed to learn. But unfortunately, after years and years of training, Jennifer tore a ligament in her knee and the injury was bad enough that any chances of becoming an Olympic figure skater were ended. So she was crushed, but she was still, you know, in school at this point and she was still a musician. So Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School uh, where she played the flute. She was very good at flute and uh, she was in the school's orchestra. And despite Jennifer's success, her former school friends regarded her parents as the stereotypical quote-unquote Asian parents. So Han was said to be a classic tiger dad. He was very overprotective of both Jennifer and Felix, and he was helping on making sure that they were on the correct life path. He wanted to make sure they did not deviate from that anyway and screw up what he had built for his family. And Big Ha, the mother, you know, she was very supportive of Han and ensuring her children's futures. She was not as authoritarian. She was kind of the person that Jennifer especially and also Felix could lean on when they felt that their dad was being too harsh. Um, but at the end of the day, she didn't interfere with what Han was doing. She let him be the authoritarian because she too believed this was the best way to go. So just as the extent of how strict the pans were, uh, Jennifer was not allowed to drive in high school. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening were not allowed to drive in high school, but not to this extent. So the pans drove Jennifer straight from you know one lesson to school to another lesson. There wasn't a moment of her day that was unsupervised. So they knew where she was at all times, there's not a chance of, oh, I'm gonna go here with a friend. It's no, they are driving her there. And as could be expected from you know this kind of a, a harsh micromanagement, Jennifer was also not permitted to date even when she was in high school. And she was also forbidden to attend any school dances, including prom, uh, due to the fact that Han and Big Ha felt this could cause her to deviate from the goals and expectations they had set. So they did not want any distractions for her. And the overly strict standards and expectations for Jennifer continued into her college age. So even once she turned 18 and was attending college, they still did not want her to date or to party or to go to dances or anything. Um, for this, they had her live at home. So they were still managing what she was like at home. Uh, Han and Big Ha were at ease with this because they felt they were teaching her to behave as a proper young lady. They also felt this would help her to become as successful as they had become themselves. And by the age of 22, Jennifer had never been to a party. She'd never been intoxicated. She'd never even gone on a vacation without her parents by her side. So if her parents were not on that trip, 
Jennifer was not on that trip. And a lot of her parents' friends felt this was the right thing to do. You know, they were strict with their children as well. Jennifer's friends felt this was oppressive and really restrictive to her upbringing. So let's back things up just a little bit. So Jennifer always felt excluded from a normal life as she grew up in Markham. Um, not only was she restricted from doing a lot of things, but there was a lot of fear going on in her head. So her parents had this image of who she was and who she should be. And Jennifer was afraid if she didn't measure up to that, bad things were going to happen. And there is no better an example of this than what happened in high school. So Jennifer was always an exceptional student in elementary school and junior high school, but in high but in actual high school things started to kind of go downhill. So a lot of Jennifer's grades started to slip even as far south as to 70%, which it didn't say, you know, if these were normal classes or AP classes but she's running either you know, a low C or a low D average if she's getting 70%, regardless of what she's in. And as a result, Jennifer started to make her own templates with spreadsheets to forge her report card. She was so afraid of her parents finding out she was no longer a straight A student, so she made herself a straight A student. And she would hand deliver her report card and be like, look, I got straight A's again. Her parents were so impressed and she's just shaking in her boots the whole time. And this deception fooled her parents throughout high school but that's all it fooled. Like when it came time to apply to colleges, there was no one who could be fooled anymore. So during her senior year of high school, Jennifer failed her calculus class. And upon receiving an updated transcript, Ryerson University, who was the college that Jennifer planned on attending, rescinded her offer. So because she failed, they were like, no, you can't go here because Technically, you didn't complete high school. You've got an F on your record. You can't graduate until you finish high school. And Jennifer was afraid to admit the truth of this to her parents. So she pretended like she was going anyway. So because she was in college, Han and Big Ha allowed Jennifer to drive to school every day. They did give her a little more freedom. So every morning they would eat breakfast, they would say goodbye to their daughter, and Jennifer would drive off to quote-unquote Ryerson University. In actuality, Jennifer sat in cafes throughout the day. Um, sometimes she taught piano to students to make money. She also worked in a restaurant to make more money. And, you know, sometimes she just kind of hung out. She was like, I have to be away for this length of time during the day so my parents don't know that I'm lying. And as this went on, her lies continued to snowball in order to maintain her secrets. So she started giving them, you know, letters of fake scholarships and saying, look, I got this new scholarship. Uh, her parents really wanted her to be a pharmacologist. 
So she eventually told them that she got acceptance into a pharmacology program at the University of Toronto and that she would be transferring there. Um, and to continue this lie, to continue this deception, Jennifer would actually buy secondhand textbooks uh, with the money that she was making at her jobs. And she even watched videos on YouTube. And with these textbooks and with the YouTube videos, she would sit in cafes and film notebooks with class notes to show her family so that she could go home and say, this is what I learned today. And if her parents asked her a question, she would know the answer. So at this point, you know, she really should have just focused on, you know, retaking that calculus class, getting her high school degree, reapplying to Ryerson and trying to do this right instead of spending all this time learning stuff for nothing, essentially. But with all this deception that they didn't know about, Han and Big Hall were very proud of their daughter and they started to give Jennifer more and more freedom. Eventually, Jennifer asked to start living off campus with a female friend during the week for her classes. Uh, she said that this closer proximity would help her studies out and you know it would also help her sleep schedule. And her parents were hesitant, but eventually they relented and they agreed she could move in with this friend. And this was a friend she'd had for a few years that the parents knew about. But in reality, Jennifer started to live with her secret boyfriend, Daniel Wong, who was her high school love. So as I mentioned before, Jennifer was in band in high school, so was Daniel Wong. And they went on an overseas trip during high school with the band. Uh, Jennifer had a really bad asthma attack and Daniel actually went and got her an inhaler to help her out with her asthma. And that kind of led to their friendship. At one point, she mentioned to her parents that she liked Daniel, but you know, he had kind of low grades. He had already been busted for selling marijuana, even in high school, so they were like, absolutely not. You know, you can't date anyway, but you definitely can't date this boy. So they started dating in private anyway. They stayed together during her fake college years, and she wound up moving in with him. Now, his parents were very accepting of her. They loved her. They knew of her deception. They you know, were shocked and kind of appalled at how her parents were treating her. But they said, you know, you're welcome to come here every anytime you want. And she ended up moving in with them during the week. And he lived 45 minutes from Ryerson University. So Jennifer was able to go there whenever she needed, you know, if her parents were gonna meet her there for lunch or something. And he was also very close to the University of Toronto. So still very quick and easy to get to campus if she needed to be there. So things were already going kind of rocky for a long time with all of this deception. But at the age of 24, that's when everything hit the fan. So at this point, Jennifer had apparently completed her undergrad degree at Ryerson University. Uh, she had lied and told her parents that only one ticket was given out to students for graduation. And so she told her parents that she'd given the ticket to a friend because she didn't think that just one parent would want to go without the other. So they think this is kind of weird that they're like, okay, you know, we're still happy you graduated. Uh, she got a fake diploma. Uh, you can actually get those pretty cheap online. But she got a fake diploma and she started her master's or medical master's at the University of Toronto for pharmacology. 
So by doing this, she also reported that she'd received a paid internship at Toronto's renowned Hospital for Sick Children, which was known as Sick Kids. So her parents were initially very happy that Jennifer was working at Sick Kids. She, you know, pretended to be very excited about working at Sick Kids, but something just wasn't right. So Jennifer's parents, Han and Big Ha, started to become suspicious because Jennifer did not have a hospital ID and she also didn't have a uniform. So she was attending, you know, this internship, this pharmacology internship daily in her normal street clothes, and she didn't really have anything to show for it. And this is something that doesn't happen in any kind of medical profession. They always give you that badge, at least. So their suspicions continue to grow, and finally, you know, Big Ha and Han decide to drop Jennifer off at her internship one day. And as soon as Jennifer got out of the car, Han told Big Ha, follow her. So Big Ha comes in, Jennifer realizes her mother is there, and she hides out like in this hallway in the uh, waiting room, you know, just pretty much indefinitely until Big Ha finally leaves. And she's just like, oh, great. Like, what's going to happen now? And she comes home that night. She it was a it was it was a weekend. So she wasn't staying with Daniel and her parents grill her and they're asking what's going on. So Jennifer cracks and admits, I never finished high school. I failed calculus. I forged my report cards. I was I didn't get into Ryerson because of that. You know, they rescinded my offer. Um, I was faking my classes and learning this stuff on my own and I faked my transcripts and I faked my scholarship and there was no graduation and I faked my transfer and I don't really have a job at the hospital. I'm working as a piano teacher and at a restaurant. So Han decided to throw Jennifer out after she admitted all of this and Big Ha was also upset but she stepped in and she begged Han to change his mind and not throw Jennifer out because she felt like she could get Jennifer back on the right foot. And Han was not pleased with this, but eventually he gave in and put Jennifer on a complete lockdown. So she was made to quit all of her jobs except for her piano lessons. Um, they made her work on finishing her high school education, which at this point was the only calculus, but she had a couple of other classes because she had been out of high school for like six years. So they wanted to make sure she was up to date with stuff and she was no longer allowed to speak to Daniel Wong. So while she was finishing her high school education and even attempting to reapply to Ryerson University, Jennifer purchased a burner phone that she could use to contact Daniel Wong. She never wavered from her love of him. They'd been together secretly for like eight years, but Daniel had grown tired of this. You know, he was 24 as well, and he's dating this girl who's on lockdown and has to have a constant guardian and has to lie about everything. And even though he loved Jennifer, he was just tired of it. So he dumped her and started dating another woman named Christine who had, you know, a life of freedom and could go where she wanted and do what she wanted. And Daniel was so much happier with Christine. But of course, Jennifer realized you know, this isn't just, we're going to take a break. He's actually moved on and she panicked. She just could not bear the thought 
of losing Daniel, so she decided to create more lies. So she calls Daniel one night, and she's crying and frantic, and he says, you know, what's wrong? And she tells him that a man had showed up the other night at her house with a police badge and had asked to enter the house and talk to her. And Jennifer didn't want to do this, but reluctantly agreed. And as soon as the man came in, more men rushed in afterwards and they knocked Jennifer down and pinned her down and gang raped her. And she said she'd already been to the hospital and stuff, but she just needed some support. And Daniel, of course, was very upset about this. And he was like, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And a few days later, Jennifer called Daniel again. And this time she said a bullet had been sent to her in the mail. And there was an accompanying letter with this bullet warning Jennifer to stay away from Daniel. So Jennifer's frantic and she's insisting that the bullet was sent from his new girlfriend, Christine. And that she believed the gang rape had also been set up by Christine because Jennifer had still been trying to contact Daniel with her burner phone and beg for him back. And I guess she figured Christine would just be super jealous. And her lies worked again. Daniel believed both the stories about the gang rape and the bullet, and he left Christine. So, of course, Jennifer needed to do something to keep her life the life she wanted to live on track. So I will let you guys know what she did after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey guys, would you like a chance to earn between $16 and $22 an hour while working from home? Do you want an opportunity that's easy and fun to do that's not a scam? Well, look no further than VIP Kid. VIP Kid is an online Chinese education firm that offers an American elementary school educational experience to Chinese students between the ages of 4 and 12. VIP Kid was founded in 2013 by Cindy Mi and it is headquarters in Beijing, China. Luckily for all of you True Crime Tea fans, you can teach with VIP Kid right from your own home. No moving to China! I have been an ESL teacher for VIP Kids since October 2017 and it is the absolute best. I honestly get to choose my own schedule and work around any of my trips and my 9 to 5 and I get to teach wonderful students the basics of English through pre-made slides and games. So there's no making my own slides, I just get to hop into my desk and go. VIP Kid has over 6,000 ESL teachers and more than 500,000 students, and they are looking to expand outside of China to other areas like Korea and India, and that means they need more teachers. To get started with VIP Kid, go to bit.ly slash VIPKidChew. Again, that's bit.ly slash V-I-P-K-I-D-C-H-U to sign up. This will expedite your application process and it'll lead to you being a fully certified ESL teacher with VIP Kid in no time. Using my promo code also lists me as your mentor so I can reach out and email you and help you with the interview process at any time. So again, you can earn $16 to $22 an hour legitimately and funly by going to bit.ly slash VIPKidChew. Online shopping is the best, right? 
Well, what if you can earn money back just from doing your normal shopping? No fine print, no gimmicks, no fees. I wouldn't do that to you guys. Just cold, hard cash. Introducing Ebates. Ebates is a cashback website headquartered in San Francisco, California. The premise is simple. Sign up for Ebates. Make purchases from popular retailers like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Kohl's, and more, and earn money back. It's really that simple. I bought a new lawnmower this past June from Walmart. I spent $130 on the lawnmower, but I earned $15 back for doing it, and that $13 went straight into my PayPal account. I've been using Ebates for about a year, and I love it. It's so easy, it works, and it's not a scam. If you're going to be doing shopping in a physical store, you can still use Ebates as well. Just use the Ebates app to link your credit or debit card to the app itself, then select the store name that you're currently shopping in, and when you check out using that credit or debit card, the points will still automatically be transferred onto your Ebates account. Your account is paid out at the end of each month, so you'll get a little something special from PayPal each month. To sign up for Ebates, go to bit.ly slash ebatesjew. Again, that's bit.ly slash e-b-a-t-e-s-c-h-u. When you sign up using that special link, you get an instant $10 credit that can be spent with any online retailer. So again, that's bit.ly slash ebatesjew. Start earning that moolah today. Welcome back, true crime enthusiasts. So, in 2010, Jennifer regained contact with one of her former high school schoolmates, Andrew Montemayor. And Andrew had professed that he had robbed people at knife point during his teen years. And Jennifer remembered this. She remembered him being, you know, the bad boy in high school. Um, just to let you guys know, Andrew would later go on to deny this allegation, so it's hearsay from Jennifer, but she said that he had professed to robbing people at knife point. So she goes up to Andrew and tells him about what's going on and that she just wants to get rid of her parents at this point. And Andrew introduced her to an old friend of his named Ricardo Duncan, and Ricardo had often bragged to Andrew and other friends that he was a hitman who had killed people for money. And Andrew was like, this is as far as I'm going with this, but if you really want to get rid of your parents, talk to Ricardo. So Jennifer does, and she gives him $1,500 to murder her father, Han, in the parking lot of his workplace at the auto dealership. So Ricardo says, you know, yes, I'll kill your dad for you. And instead, you know, she paid him up front, so he took the money and ran. So he stopped answering phone calls. He blocked her, uh, and he was like, deuces, I got your money. So Jennifer's out $1,500 at this point. And uh, it should also be noted that Ricardo has also denied this allegation. So again, this is hearsay from Jennifer. But more months of captivity passed. She's you know, secretly dating Daniel still. He's still upset that she's on lockdown and he doesn't know what to do because the last time he left her, she got gang raped and sent bullets. So he doesn't want to leave her for that, but he still needs something else. So he jumps on board with her scheme to get rid of her parents. And together they decide to hire a professional hitman 
for $10,000. So Jennifer checked out the life insurance policy and she saw that she would inherit $500,000 from her parents if they both died. So she was like, yes, this is what we need to do. We can start our own life together. Let's get a hitman. So Daniel knew a man named Linford Crawford, who was also known as Homeboy. And he contacted Homeboy and let him know what was going on. So Homeboy gave Jennifer a SIM card to switch into her phone so that she could contact him, A, without the chance for parents finding out, and also to eliminate the risk of anyone else finding out about this. And Homeboy also brought two other people into the picture. One was Eric Carty, and the other was David Mavalganam. And they all they all have a big group chat with Jennifer and Daniel, which isn't the smartest idea, um, on their phones discussing, you know, Big Ha and Han's routines and where they go and when the murder should happen and how it should happen and a back and forth thing. So they finally decide to do this on the night of November 8th, 2010. So that night in Markham, Ontario, the Pan family settled in for the night. Um, it was the rule at the Pan house that whoever was the last to go to bed needed to lock the door. And Big Ha was the last to go to bed, so she locked the door and went to sleep. And Jennifer snuck back downstairs, unlocked the door, and went back to bed. So a short time later, my Valganam, Crawford, and Carty entered the home. And they started ransacking the entire house. Uh, they went in Han and Big Ha's bedroom and dragged them to the basement of the home and tied them up. They demanded all the money in the house, which the pants, you know, told them where to get it. So they got a bunch of the money. They went upstairs and tied Jennifer to the banister with a shoelace and asked her for money. She said she had $2,000 stashed in her room and they got that as well. And then the three men went back to the basement and told the pants, we're going to kill you. And both Big Ha and Han are begging for their lives but they were shot multiple times. So Big Haw died immediately of multiple gunshot wounds to the head, and Han also received multiple gunshot wounds, notably to his shoulder and also one to his head that took out his eye. So he was actually still alive, and he started to play dead, so that way they wouldn't shoot him again. And Jennifer still tied to the banister, so she manages to wiggle one hand free and call the paramedics. So as the paramedics are arriving, you know, Han realizes the intruders are gone. He's climbing upstairs and crawling and screaming, you know, in pain. He can't really speak of what's going on. And he gets outside and a neighbor sees him and also calls 911. So, you know, there's paramedics all around heading to the pan house. So they get there and they take Han to Markham Stofill Hospital. They stabilize him and then transfer him by aircraft to the trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Uh, Jennifer was unharmed and she told the police, you know, I got tied up with the shoelace to the banister. I managed to wiggle one arm free and to call 911. And then I heard my father screaming. 
So the following day, the police had their first interview with Jennifer. She again repeated the story of what happened and they started looking into her more and more. So they realized she has a ton of phones and they asked to go through her phones and they even realized she has multiple SIM cards. So they're trying to find all of these SIM cards. She's not giving all of them up. You know, she's saying, oh, I might have lost this one. Another one might be in a pocket, in a, in a sweater. I'm not sure where it is. And at this point, they've interviewed enough people that they know how strict her parents are. So she tells the police, you know, hey, I was doing this to try to maintain some freedom that my parents wouldn't know about because they checked my phone. So I had to use burner phones and other SIM cards so they wouldn't see me talking to Daniel and other people. And they brought Jennifer back in soon after for a second interview, and the story's still the same. She is still saying the same thing. She doesn't know where all the SIM cards are, and they are searching the house to find these other SIM cards. But then, Jennifer had a third interview, and this was 14 days after the murder of Big Han and the attempted murder of Han. So the interrogating officer was Bill Gwetz, and he told Jennifer that he had software and satellites that could analyze infrared readings and detect untruth in a given statement. So essentially, they had typed up her statements, ran them through this kind of processor, and it let them know areas where, you know, this is probably a lie, that's probably a lie, et cetera, et cetera. And Canadian police under law are actually allowed to lie to people under interrogation about the evidence that can be used in a trial as a part of strategic planning. And this process is known as the read technique, um, which is a method of questioning suspects that was developed by consultant and polygraph expert John Reed. So supporters of the read technique argue that it's useful in extracting information from otherwise unwilling suspects because you're letting them think that you already know everything and they might as well just come clean. But critics argue that the technique can elicit false confessions from innocent people, especially in children. But in this case, it worked, and Jennifer cracked under the pressure again. So she admitted that she had hired the killers, um, but she said she didn't do it for the intent of murdering her parents, but to have the intruders kill her instead. But by this point, they had tracked down the SIM card that had the discussions between her, Daniel, and the three killers, um, and they had all the proof they needed. So on November 22nd, 2010, Jennifer Pan was arrested. So within weeks of each other, in April 2011, Daniel Wong, Homeboy, Eric Carty, and David Myvalganim were all arrested and charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. And all of them, plus Jennifer, pled not guilty despite having the conversations on their burner phones. So their trial began several years later on March 19th, 2014 in Newmarket, Ontario. And over a hundred text messages and hours of extensive research into communications between Jennifer and Daniel Wong were analyzed and shown to the courtroom. The last of these communications happened shortly before the murders, basically saying, okay, everything's ready. You guys can come in now and kill my parents.
So Jennifer's defense and also the several irregularities of her testimonies were dissected in the courtroom. Uh, the most notable was that Jennifer was not taken to the basement with her parents. Um, she was tied up to the banister and just kind of left there as these intruders walked around and shot her parents, which left a visible eyewitness to their crime. So this is something no normal intruder would do if she saw them, especially to the extent she saw them, they would have killed her too. You know, why was she tied upstairs and not downstairs? Why was she tied with a shoelace instead of, you know, something more sturdy? So they immediately realized something was not right with that. They also analyzed her obsession with Daniel Wong as a center focus of the trial and what led her to put a hit out on her parents. And those present in the courtroom noticed that Jennifer didn't show any signs of trauma or true emotion regarding the attack or the death of her mother. And surprisingly to everyone, there was one more witness that was brought into the trial, and this was Han Pan himself. So he had recovered enough from his injuries to be a witness, and he, as I mentioned, was the star witness. So he recalled that during the attack, Jennifer was tied to the banister, but she was chatting with the intruders the whole time, and it wasn't an angry, let my parents go kind of talk. They were just chatting like friends, and she was letting them know where to find the money she'd stashed, which was part of the money that would go to the head cost of that $10,000, mind you. And he revealed this, that his daughter knew these intruders and she wasn't concerned whatsoever. So after attempting to recreate the series of events that Jennifer had said led up to her calling 911 and failing to show how she got her hand free and to explain why she was left alive and no one else was, the case seemed to need no further processing. So Jennifer, Daniel, Homeboy Eric Carty and David Myvalganem were all convicted on December 13th, 2014. Uh, they all received a life sentence with little to no chance of parole at 25 years of incarceration. Um, so Eric Carty was actually tried separately due to another criminal trial he'd been a part of. He'd actually murdered someone else that he was on trial for as well. The rest of the four were all tried together. So following the verdict, Han Pan requested a court order that Jennifer was never to contact any of her surviving relatives ever again, which none of them want anything to do with her anyway, but this just prevented her from trying to reach out to them. Um, the defense judges argue that this was a bad decision because incarcerated people are normally focused on rehabilitation. And a lot of times they are encouraged to reach out to the people they've wronged. So the defense argued, hey, this is not the way we want to go. But the judge presiding over the case allowed this order because of the trauma that Han Pan had received. Um, he was no longer able to work. He used to love doing things like reading and gardening. He can no longer do those just because of the pain that he still felt both physically and mentally following the attack. So you know, his life was basically ruined and he agreed, you know, this girl should not be allowed to contact her family. So not only did this happen, but Jennifer was also issued a no contact clause for Daniel Wong. So during the time of the court, Daniel learned about all of Jennifer's other lies, including 
the gang rape lie and the bullet lie and all of this combined with the fact he's now in, in jail basically for the rest of his life. He was done with her too. So he also put in a no contact order for Jennifer and the same went for his family. They felt betrayed by her and they wanted no contact for her as well. So everyone wanted to be done with Jennifer. So as of today, Jennifer Pan is currently serving her sentence in the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, Daniel Wong remains at Collins Bay Institution in Kingston, Ontario. David Malvolganim is at Atlantic Institution in Rainus, New Brunswick. And Leonard Crawford, aka Homeboy, is at Kent Institute in Agassiz, British Columbia. So Eric Carty actually died in his prison cell this very year on April 26, 2018. Um, I could not find a cause of death for him, but he did die in his prison cell. The other four remained incarcerated again for life with parole options at 25 years. So they've got at least 22 more years to go for that. So as I mentioned at the start of this broadcast, this case is not without controversy. So murder is never acceptable. We all know that. We can all agree with that. But a lot of people argue that the strict conditions Jennifer had growing up, the micromanagement, the tiger parenting, was just a huge form of mental, emotional, and psychological abuse. Um, a lot of people point to the fact that even other Asian parents in the area felt that, you know, these practices were a little extreme. And also the fact that Jennifer was so terrified to tell her parents the first time she got a low grade that she allowed this entire thing to snowball over the course of a decade. So many youth, especially other Asian youth, have shared sympathy towards Jennifer, you know, for what did happen. They agree that it was wrong for her to kill her parents, of course, but they do say they can understand how this happened and that maybe a part of this was not her fault. But others, you know, both young people as well as older people feel that Jennifer could have finished high school during that first fake year at Ryerson so that she could have actually gone to college for real. On the night that Han kicked her out, Jennifer could have just agreed to get up and leave and leave a life of freedom with Daniel and his family. But instead, she turned to murder as a solution instead of just going back to school or living with Daniel. And as a result, she wound up killing the one person that had always been there for her as a cheerleader, her mother. So I know that might have been a little heavy for you guys, but thanks again for listening. Thanks to everyone who wrote in asking, hey, is True Crime Tea coming back and saying you guys really enjoyed it. So again, yes, it's back. You know, special thanks to Lee for coming in as a writer. Again, give Lee some love as well at RiotRedhead502 on Twitter. And again, we do have a bonus episode coming out this Friday. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. We are on iTunes, we are on Spotify, we're on SoundCloud, we're on, um, what else are we on? Lipson, 
still working on Google Play. I don't know what's going on with that, but we're on these other four. Maybe Google Play is just not meant to be, hey. But um, definitely follow us on any of those other avenues. Stay tuned for the next episode this Friday. And again, you can follow me on all social media, so Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at the Angie Chu. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much for reaching out to me during our hiatus. And I will see you guys next time. Bye.